Today's reading is from James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, which can be found on page 1215 of the Church Bibles. So that's page 1215. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with, against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit which he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word, oh, thanks be to God. phone on there we go that's better um, please keep the passage open in front of you James chapter 4 verses 1 to 12 and let me lead us in prayer 
Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you teach us, you speak to us. uh, And thank you that in your word we know not just how to live, but how to be forgiven, how to be made right with you, and how therefore to live as your people. So please teach us and instruct us now, we pray. Amen. Uh, Church can sometimes be a very painful place to be. Sadly, some churches are battlefields. Uh, I've never experienced that kind of thing going on in church where people are actually fighting one another, though I'm sure it's happened in some places. But there can be churches where people hold grudges for years, people vie for positions of power, Uh, there's speaking behind people's backs, misreporting what people say. And the Christians that James is writing to in this letter are just like that, maybe worse. In verse 1, he, he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. Does he actually literally mean that they're killing one another? Some commentators suggest that might be the case, but I think they're only suggesting might. I think if, uh, if that was actually the case, probably James might have mentioned it slightly earlier in the letter, that they ought to stop doing that. No, I don't think they're, I, I think it's unlikely they're actually killing each other. But Jesus does say, doesn't he, in, when he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, when he teaches on the Old Testament command, do not murder, he applies it to the heart and says, look, this isn't just about physical murder, this is about the anger that's inside. And that, he applies that command to anger as well. And that, I think, is what James is picking up on. He's saying, that's what's going on in your hearts. There is real anger, real hostility towards one another. Well, we say, thankfully, that is not us. When you came in this morning, you weren't expecting to see people fighting each other. You didn't expect to see... Robin and David, our church wardens, having it at at each other. And thankfully they didn't this morning. And they never do. They get on very, very well. Thankfully that is not our church. And we do need to remember, don't we, that there is an important biblical... Maybe they'll do it after the service. I don't know. No, they won't. Um, There is an important biblical principle, isn't there, that we are not the people directly to whom this letter was written. James was writing it to a particular church. We are not that church, and we're not the other churches that were written to. But nevertheless, this was written for us, for our benefit, that we might learn from it. And therefore, uh, it is important that we humbly come to this letter, because actually, although we may not see scenes like this in our church, yet the roots of that kind of activity, that kind of fighting, could well be in each one of us. The roots of it might be. And just because we don't see fights and quarrels openly, that doesn't mean that we don't have anything to learn here. So let's humbly come to this letter and this passage and put ourselves under its microscope. And the first thing that we see, uh, and you can follow on the back of your service sheet, there are the the headings there. The first thing that we see is their fighting comes from selfish desires. James very quickly gets underneath the quarrelling and fighting to expose what is really going on. 
like a doctor looking in someone's eyes or looking in their mouth to, and being able to diagnose something much deeper. James says, look, the quarrels and fightings are going on, but underneath, this is what's happening. It is to do with your desires, your selfish desires. So he says, don't these fights come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have. So you kill, you covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. The reason they're fighting is selfish desires. Things they want, but can't have. Here is some of what we heard last week when Chris was preaching to us from the previous passage, when it talks about um, envy and selfish ambition. It's all about my wants. Me, me, me. And that is the root of so many of our arguments and disagreements in life. It's what Paul Tripp, the American pastor and counsellor, calls the kingdom of self, where my needs and wants are central. Me as king, And others had better bow to my kingdom of self or there's going to be conflict. And Paul Tripp, in his marriage course, applies this to marriage. How often in marriages is there resentment, arguments, fighting, because the other person is not meeting my desires? It happens in in small everyday occurrences. Tripp uses a, a lovely example of, um, I think it's the husband, um, sort of one evening opens the cupboard door and sees that there's a nice bagel there. I can't remember whether I've told you this example. He sees a bagel there and he thinks to himself, that bagel is going to be perfect for tomorrow's breakfast. It's plump, it's nice, it's fresh, it'll be really good for tomorrow's breakfast. And he pins that down and thinks, that's going to be mine for tomorrow. You might apply this in other situations in your household, other good things in the cupboard, maybe. And the husband thinks, yeah, that'll be mine. And then the next morning, he comes to the cupboard, ready for breakfast, and the bagel is gone. And he thinks, who took my bagel? Who's eaten my bagel? And he goes off to work, grumpy and angry, because he couldn't have that bagel. Now, was it wrong for someone else to eat that bagel, for his wife to eat that bagel? No. It's just kingdom of self. Assuming that that would be his. And then when he couldn't have it, he's disappointed and angry because he couldn't have things his way. Well, that seems trivial, but actually these things often are in the small things in life, aren't they? Where we need to apply this. It is often our desires, our kingdom of self that gets thwarted and therefore we get angry, we get upset. And it happens in parenting too. Parents, I know there are children in for this this talk as well. Children, don't fire this at your parents, you know, later on. um, Because it may make things worse. Uh, Parents, how often do you find that having told your child off, you realise the child hadn't actually done anything wrong? They were just not serving your desires. You wanted a lion. You wanted a peaceful Saturday morning. But they wrecked it. So you're grumpy. You're grouchy. You're impatient. And what had they done? They'd knocked your kingdom of self. And of course, James is applying this to church life. 
In church life too, arguments and quarrels can happen because people aren't getting what they want. Maybe it's in the style of service or the need to have the right songs to the right tunes in the right way. And sometimes it's at the level of care. People think they should be receiving more care than they're getting. Have you felt that? Others should be caring for me. Others should be calling me. Others should be speaking to me. Do you actually ask people to call you or care for you or speak? No, no, no. They should know. Well, of course, we don't get it right, do we? We don't always get it right. It's not that we always get it right how much we should care for one another. But very often in those things, it is, well, it's kingdom of self, isn't it? It's easy to fall into self-centered desires. We all struggle with it. And one of the features of kingdom of self that James describes is that actually it affects our prayer life. So he says, verse 2, towards the end of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask God. And that's right, isn't it? When we're so caught up in ourselves and, and our own little kingdom, the last thing we do is think, actually, I could talk to God about this. I could ask God for this. And maybe it's a perfectly good desire that you have, or that I might have, and yet we forget, don't we? We don't actually talk to God about it. And then he says, verse 3, And when you ask, you don't receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. He says, when you do ask, your motives are wrong. You just want to get so that you can, uh, so that you can have more for yourself or spend it on your pleasures. In other words, you want God to be a servant in your kingdom of self, enabling you to worship yourself even more, is what he's saying. Now, just one little tip for you. In your prayer life, in my prayer life, what do we need to do? How can we change our motivation? One thing to do would be in our prayer life to make sure that we're praying the Lord's Prayer a lot. Maybe using the Lord's Prayer, as people often encourage you to do, uh, in a kind of Christmas tree kind of way, where you hang baubles on it. That is, you read a, a line of the Lord's Prayer, pray the line, and then you add things, you say things along the lines of that line. How can you develop that more? And that's so helpful because the first half of the Lord's Prayer is all about motivation. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then you come to yourself. The beginning of the Lord's Prayer points us, directs us to God, changes our motivation, doesn't it? So helpful for us. Wonderful thing to pray. So I'd encourage you to use that to help you in your motivation. So James is saying their fighting is because of selfish desires, but that's uh, not the only issue that he's got with them. It's also about unfaithfulness. Their fighting and quarrelling shows they are being unfaithful to God. And here, so he lays out their problem in terms of, uh, 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 in marriage terms. He literally begins, verse 4, adulteresses. That's how it begins. Which picks up on a common Old Testament imagery of God's people as God's bride but that they were an unfaithful bride in the Old Testament, prostituting themselves to idols. And James is saying it's quite possible for Christians and churches to do the same thing today. How? Verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? 
Therefore, anyone who chooses to be friends of the world becomes an enemy of God. James is saying you can't do both, isn't he? You can't be a friend of the world and love God. And this makes sense when we realise the Bible is a romance between God and people. Jesus has rescued his bride, the church, from death at the cost of his own life. He's pledged his faithfulness to his people. But James is saying Christians are being unfaithful by being friends of the world. And the world is opposed to God. You've got to remember that, haven't we? That the biblical uh, teaching about the way the world is, that the world is not neutral. And when he talks about the world, he's not talking about the planet. He's talking about mankind. That mankind is not neutral but opposed to God. And therefore, if we're friends with the world, we are, of course, setting ourselves against God. It is unfaithfulness. And they are showing this friendship with the world through their fighting with one another. And through other ways in the letter, through favouritism, or not putting into practice what God's word says. And we too can, have, can be in danger of imitating the world rather than obeying God. Now verse 5 is a tricky verse. It's a tricky verse to translate. You can spot that because at the very end of the verse, there's a little letter B there, which takes you down to the bottom of the page. And at the bottom of the page, it gives you two further translations that it could be. Now, I'm not going to take time to go through each of the possibilities of what it could be. But I think what James is saying there is that God is jealous for his people. Certainly elsewhere, God is described as being jealous in Exodus chapter 20. Verses 4 to 6, God is described as a jealous God, as a husband would be jealous for his wife's love. Not in an abusive or controlling way. No, there is a jealousy in some relationships and some marriages which is a paranoid controlling jealousy. And that is not good, that is not this, but there is a right jealousy, isn't there? That longs uh, for and desires faithfulness from a spouse. And God says that's the kind of love he has for his people. And we need to know this, don't we? That to live loving the world where we, make, uh, where we live like everyone around us is to make ourselves enemies of God. It is to be unfaithful to him and God is not disinterested. He loves us with a jealous love, a passionate love that wants you to be faithful to him. And so James says their infighting points to their warring desires and to their unfaithfulness. And third, it points to their taking God's place as judge. Just skip down to verses 11 to 12, and you can see where he, he says that. Uh, we're going to have to whiz through this bit bit quicker. What does he say? Verse 11, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? James is showing them that literally if they speak evil of others, that's the literal translation of what he's saying there, not slander quite, but speaking evil of others, 
He says, if you're doing that, you're setting yourself against the law. Why? Because the law says, love your neighbor. So if you're you're speaking evil of them, then you're judging the law. You're, You're going against the law, but you're also judging the law. How? Because you're saying, well, I don't agree with that law. I think I should be able to badmouth other people, and so I'm going to do it. So by speaking evil of others, you not only break the law, you say the law is wrong, and we therefore set ourselves against God, because he is the judge. Now, I'll leave you to go back and follow that train of logic through, but I think it, it stands very well, doesn't it? And we can understand that to see actually if we're speaking evil of others, we are actually putting ourselves in God's place. The place of the judge. And so he says, don't judge your neighbour. Now, again, we just need to pause on that because that is a little phrase sometimes people pick up on or from elsewhere in the Bible about not judging others. And sometimes I think maybe we misapply that. What do you think he means by saying, don't judge others? Is that saying you should never spot when other people do anything wrong? And therefore, we certainly shouldn't point it out to them because that's judging them. Well, no, that can't be what James is talking about. Could you just keep a hand in James chapter 4 and turn over the page to the end of the letter, so just over one page to page 1216. The end of chapter 5, where James says, uh, starting at verse 19 of chapter 5, so the last paragraph, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So James is clearly saying there, I want you to spot when other people are going wrong, when they're going astray, and bring them back. Don't just let them drift off. Don't just say, well, I mustn't judge. No, no, spot it, confront, and do so in love to bring them back. So it can't be when he says, don't judge your neighbor. He can't be saying, just, you know, whatever you do, don't mention to someone else that they're going wrong. So what is he talking about? Well, it must be putting ourselves in the judge's seat. That is, taking God's place and condemning others. Writing them off. According to our own views. And we often do this, I think one way that we can be tempted to do this is to label people. You think of someone who's been nasty to you, you just think, oh, well, they're just a bully. And that becomes their label. They're not a person anymore, they're a bully. Or they're just arrogant. And we label them that way, subtly dehumanizing them, and then riding them off. And James says when we do that, we're putting ourselves in God's place on God's judgment seat, usurping his position. So James here, you see, uncovers their sin, shows them what's going on. When they're fighting with one another, what's happening? He says, it's all to do with your desires. It's to do with unfaithfulness to God, loving the world rather than God, and you're taking God's place. So what's the cure? You see, all those things added together are arrogance, aren't they? It's saying, I'm going to take God's place. I'm going to be unfaithful to God, and I'm going to live for my desires in kingdom of self. What's the cure? Last point. Humble yourselves before the Lord, 
This is where we actually come to the heart of the passage and really the heart of the book of James. Verses 6 to 10. Let me read them for us. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. It's bookended, that section, with the words, humble. God shows favour to the humble, verse 6, and verse 10, humble yourselves. So that is the big command, isn't it? Humble yourself before God. Take the crown off your head. Stop living in the kingdom of self. Lay your crown before his throne. Bow before God. And there are a series of commands there that show what it means to humble yourself before God. He says, submit yourselves to God. Come under God. He is king. He is judge. Come out from the world's way of thinking which opposes God and submit to him. Bow before him with everything you have. Submit to his rule, his word and his ways. It says resist the devil. Don't fall for the devil's lies. The devil said to Eve in the Garden of Eden, do you remember what he said? What did he promise her if she ate the fruit God told her not to eat? What did he promise her? He said, you will be like God. Do you see he's saying, you eat this, You can be in kingdom of self. The devil's tactics are not necessarily to get people worshipping him, but to worship themselves, that they could be like God. And that is what we're tempted to do too. And when we do, we do serve him. He promises us freedom if we do it, but it is never freedom. says resist the devil and he will flee from you he's not all powerful James says come near to God and the promise he will come near to you we may be terrible rebels against God but the promise is that if we submit if we draw close he will draw close to us in love He says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's possible to have all your sin and wrongdoing washed away. For it to be washed clean through Jesus' death. It's what we celebrate at communion. Here at communion is a call for any and all to come and be washed by Jesus. What stops someone having their wrong washed away? It is just pride. There is a call to purify your hearts if you're double-minded. And that's been the diagnosis throughout the letter, hasn't it? That those James is writing to have been double-minded, living for the world and living for God. He says, don't be like that. Don't be unfaithful. Purify your minds. Be holy for God. And then he says, verse 9, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Ah, miserable Christians. Except this isn't a command for Christians just to have long faces. But it is to say that their laughter and joy 
were utterly inappropriate because they weren't recognizing the situation they were in before God, their rebellion, their taking God's place. That their fighting shows that they were in a terrible place. And so it's more appropriate for them to mourn and grieve. And it is appropriate for us to do that too with our sin. To mourn our sin before God. Not just before ourselves. Sometimes people see their sin and hate themselves. And that is where they stay. Forever hating themselves. But this is a call to humble ourselves before the Lord. To bring our sin before Him. To mourn for it before Him. Because first and foremost it is an offence against God. It is unfaithfulness against Him. And the promise is, and it is a promise, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. There is forgiveness with God. Humble yourselves before Him. Humble yourself before Him as you take communion. Recognise your sin as I need to recognise mine. And know that he raises us up through Jesus, through Jesus' death. And that is where true joy is to be found. As we know forgiveness and washing. And it's only as we humble ourselves before God, as we come before him, that actually we can build a community of love and forgiveness. They were fighting and quarrelling. But if they come to God and humbly submit to him, if they're washed clean, if we're washed clean, we can build a community of forgiveness and love. And communion shows that. Because as we take communion, the vertical and the horizontal come together. The being washed by God for our sin. And taking it together, taking communion together, that's why you can't do it on your own. You can't do it at home on your own. You've got to do it together with others. Because it's the gospel, Jesus' death, that washes us clean and that brings us together as a community of love. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray, please, that you would help us to apply these truths to our hearts, to come before you humbly as we take communion, humbling ourselves before you, weeping, Morning, wailing for our sin and knowing that you promised to lift us up and you do so through Jesus and his death in our place. And so help us, Father, as we apply these truths to our hearts that we would then grow more into being the community of love and forgiveness that you want us to be. Amen.